Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals. This is Season 2, Episode 1. On Episode Alpha, which preceded this, we discussed what literary work we're going to be discussing this summer, which is Flannery O'Connor's posthumous short story collection called Everything That Rises Must Converge, which was published in 1965, just after her death in 1964. So uh, on that episode, we discussed why Flannery O'Connor, why these stories, and our background in teaching Flannery O'Connor. So Whitney has been teaching Flannery O'Connor, I think, the last year. Um, So Whitney, um, tell us a little bit about, you've taught Greenleaf before from this collection. Um, Just talk to us a little bit about, like, teaching Flannery O'Connor, and then we'll kind of get into, like, how we might teach these stories if we're going to teach the stories we're talking about today. Well, yeah, so last year is the first year that I'd taught more than one story by O'Connor. I'd taught, you know, here and there just kind of popped in good country people or a good man is hard to find into the curriculum. But um, I taught a selection of her stories last year and then had my students choose a story as well and just do write an analysis, you know, of that story on their own. Um, I did find in teaching her that the students needed some help having an entry point into her stories because both knowing that she's a Christian writer with Christian aims and also understanding kind of what that means to her and how she approaches writing. She called it incarnationally, but writing as a Christian and including so much shocking violence and including so many people who are clearly, um, selfish or self-involved or petty or just sinful. Um, my, my students really needed a lot of guidance in terms of, um, I gave them quotations from her letters and from her prayer journal and some information from critics who I felt interpreted her well so that they understood what her purposes were and could almost kind of give her the benefit of the doubt that a Christian writer could be writing stories like this. And then I also had to model how to interpret a story or two and then kind of let them do it together in groups and kick around ideas and then do it on their own. But they got the hang of it and ended up doing really well on the most part, for the most part, um, by the time they'd read, you know, maybe six stories all together um, as a class, then they were ready to tackle one on their own. But it was, I mean, I felt as if I needed to help them build up to interpreting her stories well. Mm. I think that that's a big thing about Flannery O'Connor, whether you're tackling it as a student or as a teacher or just as a reader, uh, like Whitney said, you have to kind of build build your tolerance up. <laughs> and uh, what better place to start than a story like Good Country People where, uh, you know, this self-professed atheist woman who you know, is 31, unmarried, lives at home with her mother, uh, thinks she's going to seduce this Bible salesman named Manly Pointer only to get her wooden leg stolen from her and she gets left in a barn. And he's like, I've been believing in nothing since the day I was born. At least someone dies in that one. True. So it's a little less horrifying than, say, a good man is hard to find where all family dies. But And so, the you know, that story is a good example of the grotesque. Um, that it, it doesn't Violence doesn't have to be... Uh, catastrophic to be, to be really disturbing, but a good man is hard to find is a great example. Like when he said of just 
you know, a, a little car trip with the family and everybody ends up dying except for the cat. And so um, those are good entry points uh, for O'Connor in terms of just how shocking she is. Mm-hmm. And they're so entertaining mm-hmm. that they lure you in. You, you want to keep reading those stories because you're just like, oh, these are funny at first. <laughs> they're funny. Um, the characters are engaging. The details are entertaining. But mm-hmm. then you get to the denouement and you're like, why? Yeah. What was the point? That's how students react oftentimes. And I think that that's really why we're doing this particular collection. Um, the whys here, um, they're not quite as scratch your head as some of the the stories in A Good Man is Hard to Find, the collection. Um, and so some of the, some of the whys are, are much easier to interpret if you have a strong Christian foundation to read her stories, but of course she's not writing it explicitly for Christians. I think she's actually really offensive to Christians who would read her stories and be like, this is too upsetting or unsettling, or this is, these characters are just unredeemable. And I think that really what Flannery is doing is, is trying to get you to look at people through God's eyes uh, in all their warts and all their glory, you know, and, and everything in between. And, and uh, the two stories that we're going to discuss today um, everything that rises must converge, and the comforts of home are both about young men who struggle to see their mothers and others uh, in their rightful places, um, and then what what God does with those two people, if anything. <laughs> and so, um, those are the two stories we're going to discuss in, in detail today. But um, I guess before we get into that. Um, one of the things to discuss about Flannery O'Connor is the fact that she's from Georgia. She is writing in the 50s and the 60s, so really the civil rights era in one of the crucibles of the civil rights, you know, in between Georgia and, and uh, Alabama and Arkansas. Obviously, the entire South is, is, is the place where the civil rights uh, legislation is really hitting uh, and having the most impact, but in Georgia particularly, um, Flannery is, is not only writing about um, the changes in the new South, but also people who are holding on to the old South, um, which is, you know, I guess it's the case in a lot of Southern fiction, but like, for example, um, To Kill Mockingbird really does not have that old South, like antebellum. It, it just doesn't have roots that deep because I feel like it's much more a story about the changing of, of the, the South um, rather than what the South was, as opposed to, say, Absalom, Absalom, which we talked about last summer, which is really much more about the South as it was, and it really doesn't uh, give as much credence to the, the changing South as it does to, you know, the kind of like the, the, the South of the Lost Cause that's really um, not even realistic, but just almost uh, remembered as a dream. Um, because of the the Civil War being so violent and and deadly and and changing Southern Southern civilization so much. Um, Flannery kind of bridges the the kind of um, To Kill Mockingbird level South, which is written, you know, it's it's published in 1960, and and the Faulkner South. Um, So so those are kind of two good touch points, especially in, in... uh, reference to her stories on race, which not every story is about race, but certainly everything that rises must converge is. So, uh, Whitney, let's let's start it off with you. Just just talk about everything that rises must converge. Um, okay, so it's funny you were talking about 
this story being about race and the other story not so much. And I was thinking about both stories seem to be about um, hierarchical thinking, Mm -hmm. like race and class, um, where people fit in the social hierarchy. I think when you talk about the New South, that's part of what was changing was that it was starting to become a little fuzzier where everyone fit in the social hierarchy, whereas it had been relatively clear. I mean, I would guess after the Civil War, that was in a, a sort of upheaval for quite a while, but um, leading up to the Civil Rights Movement, it had kind of maybe settled into another kind of stability where you have um, kind of a upper white class and then you have a kind of a middle white class and a lower white class or white trash class, I guess you would say. And then you've got, um, you know, all of the the black residents of the South kind of at the bottom of that hierarchy. And I was thinking about that with both stories, just to make a quick connection. Um, because when Star shows up in the comforts of home, mm-hmm. you know, she's clearly coming from a different social class than the story and then the story the family focuses on. Right. And even in everything that rises, um, you've got all these people on a bus, which is a perfect place to have this collision of social classes. I mean, the, the very wealthiest will not be on a bus, but what you have on this particular bus is, um, some people I think we would identify as white trash. Um, there's a woman in particular who they're chatting with, um, who's clearly, by the way she talks, even by the shoes she wears. I've noticed that Flannery O'Connor uses shoes as like a signal as mm-hmm. to what social class you belong to. Are you wearing tennis shoes? Or are you wearing like, you know, leather pumps? Like what, how do you dress yeah. to get on a bus? That's going to be just a little indication of what social class you're from. Um, but then it gets all confused because a black woman gets onto the bus and she's dressed very similarly and with the same hat as Julie's mother. And so those little social markers that create social class distinctions get all mixed up in this story. And I think there's some anxiety around that happening in the comforts of home too. Like, yeah. So when, you know, Thomas's mother keeps saying she could be you, she could be you about star. And he's like, absolutely not. She most certainly could not be me. You know, he wants to draw an incredibly sharp distinction between himself and his mother and this, this type of girl. But yeah. So in both stories, I think you've got people who have a lot of anxiety about distinguishing themselves from people they consider lower and it's for different reasons. It's not exactly the same with Thomas and Julian. Um, So on the surface, the mother, mother son relationships are quite parallel, but the more you dig into it, there are these subtle distinctions um, as to why the sons feel superior um, why the mothers have this impulse toward reckless charity mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for someone less fortunate um, and, and how that backfires. Very similar in some ways, but lots of subtle distinctions, which just go to show that Flannery O'Connor understood the South so well, understood her particular milieu so well. She could show the tiniest little grains of distinction between classes between people with who seem similar on the outside but have different motivations. So Whitney brings up a lot of great points, not all of which I can attend to at this point, but 
uh, one of the things that, that I think really stands out, like what you were saying, is the, the, the switch in the South from, like, just a pure race-based society uh, where white people are superior to black people. Like, that, that was... I think we talked about this at, at length on the Absalom Absalom discussion. The zeitgeist of the pre-Civil War South was white people are better than black people. That's why black people were enslaved. Like, that, that was their worldview. And so when the slavery is taken away, how did they shift that? Well, eventually they get to what Whitney was talking about, which I would say more of a class-based society, um, but it doesn't happen overnight. And really, even at Flannery O'Connor's time, almost 100 years after the Civil War, they're still um, delineating the, the, the classes and the stratifications. Um, and, and one of the other stories that we'll talk about, uh, I think we're going to do this one last, the, the story Revelation, is a very similar story uh, to, to everything that rises must converge in, in so far as it's about where does this main character rank among all people? And, and so um, I think it's just the human nature to want to say, where do I stand relative mm-hmm. to others? Um, and the zeitgeist changes, you know, even from uh, 2020 till now, I feel like the zeitgeist has changed even more in a year um, with wokeism and, and, and just the, the, the critical theory approach to life, which is he who has the most victimizations wins, um, or she, <laughs> or should I say they who have, because that's uh, just the, the destruction of, of the singular pronoun uh, in the English language, you know. <laughs> it's just, oh well. It was nice while it lasted, he, she, and it. Um, so... Just the zeitgeist of Flannery O'Connor's time is very class-based. And so one of the things that that affects both of these stories is what uh, I would consider uh, what makes a woman a lady. And so that's something we'll talk about with both stories. Um, And um, that's, that's just really a governing principle. I think to the same extent that race is in, um, in everything rises must converge or that, um, vice is, um, in, in, uh, or uh, being an upstanding person. I think that's how Thomas, uh, phrases it. An upstanding person wouldn't write a bad check. Um, so that concept of what makes you good, what makes you upstanding, what makes you virtuous, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and these two stories are, are different. I don't think they answer the question the same exact way, but there's certainly this, uh, this hierarchy that says a Southern lady is at the top of the hierarchy because that's the most sought-after, valuable, precious thing, and we must keep our women ladies at all costs. And, and that, that, like I said, that zeitgeist really governed the South, I'd, I'd say starting at the end of the Civil War forward uh, because now you don't, you don't have slavery um, to, to kind of, be like a hard line, you know, like that was the hard line that defined people before the civil war in the South. And now you don't have that. And so for a hundred years, they're, they're trying to find a new zeitgeist and still trying to hold on to the old one. And so uh, everything that rises must converge, I think is a great example of two generations trying to, to let their will be done in, in 
racial relations, uh, you know, in their case, to white people from different generations, trying to figure out how to view black people, how to interact with black people, how to um, see the dignity of black people, and um, neither one gets it right. <laughs> but but uh, each of them has uh, an element of rightness to their vision, uh, which I think is is something that we'll talk about is, is why, why is um, Julian's mother redeemable, you know, especially in our current climate where we would say if you looked at someone of another race in, in a condescending way, you, you deserve to be in hell. And, and, you know, is there any grace for that? Is there any forgiveness for that? You know, uh, is that the only sin that, that warrants hell? You know, and, and that's, that's kind of where we are in our, our culture today in 2021 but but this story I think really speaks to um, just being inside the mind of someone who professes a worldview but actually is more complex and and more uh, multifaceted than than we would maybe even give her credit to be my turn yeah talk talk (laughs) about talk about um, Julian and his mother anything about everything that rises um okay um yeah, one thing that is kind of similar to what you were just talking about, um, his mother is just kind of generally complaining on the bus that it's a wonder we can enjoy anything. The bottom rail is on the top. Um, she feels, it sounds like a little at sea, um, you know, in the changing world. Like, she doesn't really understand how to deal with the fact that a family like hers, which is an old, important family who used to live in an Annabelle mansion, um, a family like hers could be just kind of one of the masses of people riding the bus, not really any more important than anyone else. Um, She is determined to make the best of it, I guess, in her own way. She seems pretty committed to thinking positively and saying, basically, I am who I am because of who my forebears were. So that can't change. So I don't really have to have any anxiety about my identity, even though the world around me is changing. I am from this family. I'm the woman who goes to the Y reducing class and a hat and gloves. So just a signal to everyone I'm a lady. With a with her gentleman standing. escort. Yeah. I don't ride That's the bus son. alone. Um, it's really interesting. This woman seems to have actually had to work really hard and, and to have been pretty tough based on the circumstances that she and her son faced. She was raising him alone, and she had to work hard to even just survive, it sounds like. Um, she must have been a tough person. Um, but he sees her as being like a weak child, Um, and treats her so condescendingly that it's hard not, we're in his head so much of the story, it's hard not to think of her the same way, just as just like weak and childlike and kind of too innocent to know better, maybe. Um, But yeah, she's, she's thinking of herself as part of a tradition and a society reaching back generations and that's where she's getting her sense of identity and her son's really debunking that he's thinking really more like a modern person um an individualistic person who needs to prove his importance by how intelligent and kind of progressive he is instead of by 
just who his family was and what his background is. So they're, they're having a clash of understanding in terms of what makes them important, but they both feel it's quite, it's, it's quite necessary to them to feel important compared to other people. Yeah. And I think, you know, really this story is all about judgment. Um, and you know, uh, Julian's mother is judgmental. Julian is very judgmental. Um, I think the woman with the hat, the matching hat is judgmental. Um, and and the, there's a woman uh, we were talking about. There are women on the bus, so that, so they get on the bus, and there are two other women, one of whom has big teeth, um, and she stays where she's sitting, and the other one is a, apparently the higher class one, and she actually moves backward in the bus, like goes to sit further back in the bus when a black man gets on the bus, which is interesting because that's a flip, like. That's, that's the opposite of what was happening before the end of segregation, right? Before the end of segregation, the black man would have to go to the end of the bus, whereas now the white woman is, is literally doing what the black, black people would have done prior to Rosa Parks. And so there, there's, like, like Whitney read, the, the quote that the bottom rail is on the top. It's not that the black man just finds the next closest spot. It's that he actually has a spot right by the door because the woman gets up. And so that that's a subtle thing that Flannery adds to the story, but I think it's really telling that, like, that it, you can't just, like, make the bus integrated and think there's there's going to be no change. Like, there is a change, and, and so she's, she's artfully kind of directing the people on the bus to show, like, there, there's an empowerment of the African Americans to feel like they can sit in the front of the bus, but there's also this sense of like, I want to, I want to kind of flee, you know, the white flight syndrome. Like, I, w- I want to get away from the black person, so I'll just go sit where they used to sit in the back of the bus. So that's, it's just, that's a tiny thing in this story, but I think it's just indicative that like the woman would rather sit by herself in the back of the bus than sit close to a black man, which, you know, that, that would be like a good example of racism. (laughs) Like saying like, I don't know you at all, but I'd rather sit farther away from you because you're a different race. That knowing that Flannery often is going to be echoing scripture, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm just alert to it. And so that um, phrase about the bottom rail being on the top made me think of the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Um, I think, Probably that was intentional that, you know, Mrs. Is her name Mrs. Chesney? They're Chesneys. That's their family name. That's What's the their family last name. name. I, I, they don't have, they don't have an one. actual last name. Yeah. I think I think that her family name is Chesney. Is Chesney, but not her married name. Okay, right. so. God, God High was her, was her mother's, right? Yeah, your grandmother yeah. was a God High. So, so she is the granddaughter of a governor of Georgia. Mm-hmm. And who who had lived in this mansion that they they used to live in, mm-hmm. and so, um, well, so yeah, the, yeah, that kind of like family, uh, you know, they still have the roots of those families, but they actually aren't. Their last name is not given because whoever his dad is, is not, is not as impressive. Well, it's probably significant to some degree that she is called Julian's mother or the old lady throughout the story. You know, she's not given that kind of distinct identity and we do see her through his eyes and through his um you know his frustration with her 
um, pretty consistently. But all that to say, the bottom rail is on the top. This is similar to what Christ says will happen. Mm-hmm. The last will be first. That's part of the um, the end times. That's part of how God is going to um, evaluate human beings, the people who are considered uh, the least of these on yeah. earth are prized and valued and, and treasured by God and treasured in, in heaven when things are put right. Mm-hmm. And she resents that, right? She says, how are we going to enjoy anything when the bottom rail is on the top? Um, the only way she finds to enjoy life is by making herself feel impervious, saying, well, I know who I am. No one can mm-hmm. affect me. And he does something very similar. Julian says he kind of retreats into his mind, into like a, a mansion in his mind. He like retreats and just watches people and judges them and doesn't let anyone affect him any more than he has to. Tries yeah. not to let people affect him. Um, but I think both of them are in desperate need of, A, a realization that God's priorities, that, that there is a God and God's priorities for how to value people are just very different from theirs. And um, also that in the spiritual hierarchy, they could very well be at the bottom and belong there. You know, they're not any better because of their intelligence or their family background. Yeah. Well, you know, the way that she projects how she feels, you know, like, oh, we have the bus all to ourselves. Like, she says that in a very pointed way because everyone on the bus is white when she gets on. But then at the end of the story, she's wanting, you know, she sees this black boy and it's like, oh, he's so cute, and and she wants to give him a nickel. And, you know, we'll we'll get to that in a a few minutes. But um, that, I think, is just a really powerful, you know, dichotomy between what you say about people versus how you treat them. Um... And, and, you know, Julian's mother is more, I actually think she's the, the inverse of what Julian is. Julian's big talk, but when he tries to actually interact with black people, it says he can't make any friends that are black. And so... And ironically, that little kid really wants to the mother to pay attention to him. He's like almost flirting with Julian's yes. mother the whole time. Like, hey, you know, he I'm sure he wants that penny or that nickel. Oh, yeah. And the mom understandably and rightfully thinks this is weird and condescending. This woman thinks she needs to give my kid money, like, you know, just get away from us. Yeah. But because I do think that I've kind of seen this phenomenon in action myself a few times that there can be a tendency for a person who has a, a pretty strong dislike for an adult member of a race to make a point of saying, oh, I think children of that race are so cute Mm -hmm. because it makes you feel like you're not a racist. Right. To say like, no, 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 I think kids of that race are really cute. It's just the adults. And I think it's a a way of making yourself feel better about the prejudices that you do kind of automatically have the knee-jerk reaction about adults. Um, Because it's easy to be sympathetic to a kid, right? Right. But you're right, like, you can tell that Julian wants to use any black person he meets along the way because he wants to feel good about himself because he made a black friend and they can, everyone he's meeting can probably, you know, sense that about him from a mile away. And it's just like, 
you know, no thank you. Yeah. Or his, his mother at least is trying to give something, I guess, instead of just straight up using, although she might be using them to feel better about herself and her generosity. Right. Her graciousness. Well, and I think that that word is really powerful. Julian is using black people. You know, he's using them as a way to judge his mom. And uh, Julian's mom is not doing that. She is genuinely wanting to give this kid a little bit of money. Now, a nickel is nothing. I don't even think he could buy a soda in 1960. I believe this was published in 1962, 1961. Um, But point being, um, she... She just wants to give him a little gift, which we'll talk about in the ending in, in, in a little while. But she wants to give him a gift. And I, I see it as a genuine desire to give. I don't think it is like, let me show like how haughty and, and um, you know, proud I am by like deigning to give this kid a, a nickel. I, I don't think it's coming from a sense of, of like, I'm, I'm so superior to you, let me give this to you. I think it's just like, it would make me happy if an adult had given me this when I was young. And I think that, you know, that's the thing to remember about any older person is a nickel to an old person is like whatever $20, $20 is to us. Like, if someone had given me $20 when I was a little kid, I would have been like, this is amazing. I mean, even if it had been $5, I would have been like, this is amazing. My dad broke both of his arms one summer. He, like, fell out of a rope swing or something, and they went to Washington, D.C. on vacation, and someone just walked up to him and gave him $20 because he just looked pitiful because both mm. of his arms were broken. Mm. I think it was $20, and, I mean, he when my dad told the story, he was like, $20 was a lot of money back then. Like, yeah. that, I felt really rich, almost like it was worth <laughs> break in your, both your arms Well, for. she says that she could pay the power bill with $7.50, which is how much the hat costs. So the hat is supposed to be kind of expensive. Um, you know, if you think about your power bill might be anywhere between, I don't know, $100 and $300 or something like that. So it's like, it's a fancy hat. And so to think of it in those terms, yes, a nickel compared to seven fifty is still not very much, but it might be enough to like, like I said, buy a Coke or, or like when it a, ends up being a penny because she can't yeah because she can't find a nickel. But I think part of the issue is just that the mom of that little boy is is upset and angry and offended. The little boy clearly right. isn't, um, but the mother is. And Julian, I think Julian's incredibly biased and mean spirited toward his mother, but he it does rightly intuit that this is not going to go over well and it's not going to be taken as kind by the mother. And you really shouldn't do this if the mother doesn't want you to. There's this little part um, where Julian's mother says, I think he likes me, and smiles at the little boy's mom. And the narrator says it was the smile she used when she was being particularly gracious to an inferior. But you can kind of tell it's in Julian's voice because right right after that it says Julian saw everything lost most of the story even if it's in the narratorial voice it seems like it's really kind of um they call it focalized through Julian but so you're reading along and you think oh you know I wonder if Julian's being too hard on her Mm -hmm. like or but he knows her well and maybe he really has seen her be gracious to an inferior so she like 
that that is a smile she uses when she is dealing with someone she feels is inferior to her. Right. And then right after that, it says um, that the mother is very angry and Julian could feel the rage in her at having no weapon like his mother's smile. Yeah. And so Julia is perceiving his mother is wielding the smile like a weapon, but seemingly doing it unconsciously because the other times he says that she's like a child or that she's yes. innocent. Yes. So I think the way he views her is a complicated version of a combination of toxic and oblivious. Yeah. So she doesn't understand that she's doing something hurtful and she doesn't mean to be doing anything hurtful. But he feels like it doesn't matter how many times people tell her she's being hurtful, she would do it anyway because that's what she wants to do. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It says on the second page of the story, everything that gave her pleasure was small and depressed him. And so just that concept of, like, this is about as small as it gets, like giving someone a penny. And that's something that's going to give her pleasure. Like, why is he trying to deprive his mother of something that gives her pleasure well, because, like when he was saying, he's trying to protect his mom, but really, it's like he could have protected his mom in a million different ways, one of which is, like, being friendly to that, you know, black woman and just, like, oh, tell me about your kid. What's, you know, like, like he could have been preemptively protective of his mom by being kind. But and, you know how he tries to talk to that black man yes. and then he, he does it to make his mom angry because yes. he's like, she's going to hate this. And then he talks, he says, can I have a match? And then he realizes he doesn't even have a cigarette. So he's like, and a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he sounds ridiculous. But I think he is also subtle. And I, I love that about it, that he, on the one hand, understands that it will anger his mom if he's friendly to a black adult, just kind of yeah. apropos of nothing. Um, his mother will want to be friendly to a black child. So those two things just e coexist, right? Yeah. And he, on the one hand, does want to make his mother angry, right? right. Like he wants right. to frustrate her, annoy her. But it's almost like he can sense that it's going to be going too far to give this child the money, like, he really doesn't want to make black people mad on the bus, right? Like, he wants them to, he wants to make his mom mad, and he feels yes. pretty safe making his mother mad, but he doesn't want to evoke the ire of any of these black people on the yes. bus. Like, it says that when she, he can just tell she's about to give the kids some money. Mm -hmm. He just knows her, and he knows, like, that's what she would naturally do in this situation, and it says, Julian was thankful that the next stop was theirs. He reached up and pulled the cord. The woman reached up and pulled it at the same time. Oh, my God, he thought. <laughs> he had the terrible intuition that when they got off the bus together, his mother would open her purse and give the little boy a nickel. The gesture would be as natural to her as breathing. So it's like he's scared in yes. that moment. He's not like rolling his eyes in annoyance like stupid mom. She didn't know better. Then he's like, no, no. And he, he like literally is hissing at her. No, 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 mom. Don't do it. Don't do it. And she completely ignores. And she in fact, she doesn't just kind of hand him a nickel. She like chases them down. To, she's like, yes. oh, little boy. Yes. <laughs> I have, a, have a, a penny for you. So I, all that to say that I think it says he's frozen with frustrated rage. Mm. Oh, no, that's the mother. Sorry, the, the mother is frozen with frustrated rage. But I think that kind of seems like Julian, too, right? Like, he feels like he can't do anything 
in the face of his mother. Like, he can't stop her. The mother feels like she kind of can't stop the mother from, like, cozying up to the little boy. Yeah. This mother is weirdly powerful up till the very end of the story. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you said he hissed at her because it, it uses that word continuously. Um, and that, you know, with Flannery O'Connor, anything that sounds like it could be a loaded word, it almost certainly is. And um, she just she just hits you right over the head with it. Faulkner, he puts it in the, in the middle of a 1,200-word sentence. But that, I think, is is in, indicative of uh, Julian's attitude toward his mother is, like, he is trying to, to um, get her to sin by not dignifying this, this, you know, little black boy, even though she wants to. And it, you know, it says that this would be like something that's a, a great pleasure to her. And it says something um, at the bottom of the second page of the story. It says, Julian walked with his hands in his pockets, his head down and thrust forward and his eyes glazed with the determination to make himself completely numb during the time he would be sacrificed to her pleasure. And so that concept of this going to this this weight loss, you know, reducing class, which by the way, 165 to 200 pounds, like that apparently was like very obese in 1961. <laughs> which you know, I mean, if you if you deal with obesity, my my dad dealt with obesity. It's a serious thing, but um, but that's that's kind of the context for the whole story. Is like they're going to this class because his mom has high blood pressure and she actually does need to lose some weight. And so, uh, and it says ladies did not tell their age or weight, which I think that in a, just in a little <laughs> phrase in that very first paragraph, that tells you all you need to know about the zeitgeist that even till today still governs Southern women. I can't tell you how old I am because I'm a lady. And that the very first paragraph subtly lets us know that she's not really a lady even by her own standards because it says she's going to a reducing class for working girls over 50 who weighed from 165 to 200 pounds yet ladies don't tell their age and weight but by attending the class she's pretty much disclosing her age Mm -hmm. and weight and grouping herself with working girls so not ladies girls who have to work that's the opposite of a lady Mm -hmm. so it's all a pretense yes. that she's a lady by the standards of the society in which she's trying to function as a yeah. lady. Well, and she's a striver. She she is not naturally a lady on the count of her like economic class for herself or for her I don't know, like the way she carries herself. She's a backward striver. Yes, she's a backward striver for and, her old family's way. She you know, that's, I think, what's so powerful about this particular story in comparison to really all the other ones is this one is much more about the the Old South than some of the other ones we're going to discuss. And um, she just, she has this vivid memory of being young. So she's, you know, somewhere over 50, and I, I'm guessing she's about maybe 55 or 60. So she, she was probably born right around the turn of the century. And so... Um, one of the things that we learn is she says, this is on the fifth page of my, I, I'm, I'm in a different edition from Whitney, but page seven, if you're reading the actual book, uh, she's in the collected stories. It says, um, 
I remember going to Grandpa's when I was a little girl. Then the house had double stairways that went up to what was really the second floor. All the cooking was done on the first. I used to like to stay down in the kitchen on account of the way the walls smelled. I would sit with my nose pressed against the plaster and take deep breaths. Actually, the place belonged to the Godhives, but your father, Grandfather Chesney paid the mortgage and saved it for them. They were in reduced circumstances, she said, but reduced or not, they never forgot who they were. So there's that word reduced. <laughs> you know, it's just interesting. It like, has an echo there, but I think it's... I put she's at home in the black area of the house because even though this is after the Civil War, the servants that work for the house are still African-American. And so... Um, she's actually really at home being around black people when it's in the context of her family house. Now you might say, well, that's condescending or that's, you know, that, that just shows she's racist and, you know, maybe you're right. But the next page it says, and I remember this old, the old darkie who was my nurse, Caroline, of course, darkie is, is a pejorative way to describe a black person. And it says there was no better person in the world I've always had great a great respect for my colored friends. I'd do anything in the world for them. And they'd and then she's about to say she's probably gonna say they'd do the same for me. And then Julian says, Will you for God's sake get off that subject? And so <laughs> So here she's musing, right? She's just kind of discussing what it was like to be a young girl. And her best friend in the world was a black woman that was her nurse. And and she says, there's no better person in the world. And sure enough, at the very end of the story, she says, tell Caroline to come get me, which is really powerful. Like, when you're reading it the first time, you just don't remember who Caroline was. But to think that here's this woman who's been painted as such a racist by her son, because, yes, she, she has racist elements to her personality. But in her dying moments... She's calling for her African-American nurse. She's not calling for her Chesney grandfather or the God highs. She's not, she's not actually trying to connect to the people she was. She's actually trying to connect in a new way to a person she couldn't connect to equally in her time, you know, as a child. Um, and so that's, you know, I think that's just a really powerful ending uh, that Flannery just does so perfectly in, in all her stories, but especially this one is like, she brings this spiritual element, which is, you know, the title is Everything That Rises Must Converge. Well, it'd be a very different meaning if it said everything that converges must rise. And that's not the case. Like, you mix people together, they're not going to naturally rise together, right? But everything that rises has to come together, you know, this sense of like, if you're going to heaven you're going to a multicultural heaven. You're not going to white heaven or black heaven or whatever. It's going to be the all place, in the image of God. Exactly. The place where everyone is in the image of God and you you know there's neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek. There's just a oneness that uh, identifies people's dignity but but unites them rather than keeps them all in separate containers like they're action figures or something like that. Yeah. I think she's really good at showing all the nuance of growing up in the South in the 20th century. And it can be easier probably to talk about race relations from the outside in a place that's actually not very 
diverse mm-hmm. or doesn't actually have th- that dynamic that the South has where formerly, you know, the, the ancestors of these, like, are the descendants of these enslaved people are having to live alongside people who are descendants of their enslavers, but also people who are the descendants of sharecroppers and people mm-hmm. who, you yeah. know, you know, we're just kind of trying to make it. I mean, but there's this just very distinct cultural environment where you can look at someone's face and sort of like make a guess as to what the situation was with their ancestors and yeah. the oppression that took place generations ago. And she just shows really well how a person who has more progressive ideas can actually be um, selfish and manipulative and wanting to use the, you know, people in the oppressed minority. And then how a person who has really racist views that are unacceptable can also have compassion for actual living individual examples of that race Mm -hmm. and have like affection. I think Flannery O'Connor seemed to think a lot about what she called like a, a fantasy or a kind of a daydream of love and kindness and tolerance and pity that doesn't really have much effect boots on the ground. And Mm. I think it's very easy in theory to talk a good game about empathy and caring for the oppressed and um, overcoming prejudices, but it's difficult and loving the human race, Mm -hmm. but it's difficult to love individual people. It's difficult to to connect with individual people. It's difficult to love a particular example of the human race oftentimes, especially one who is really different from you or has a different background or something. So, that's where the Holy Spirit really has to step in and help is when it comes to, well, how do I love someone who's completely different from me and I don't understand that person or someone who is my enemy in some way or another? What do I do then? And it's not just about loving the human race in the abstract. One of the things that, that Julian's mother keeps saying is Rome wasn't built in a day. And she says, it just takes time and, and, there's this concept of change can come if it's gradual, but when you try to change everything immediately, which I think happens every like 20 or 30 years, there's this over, basically you overdo it and then you go backwards a lot. And so every generation, there's progress you know, for, for racial reconciliation, for example. But the progress is not continuous. And so there's this sense of like, well, there are more opportunities for minorities now than there were 30 years ago, which is more than there were 60 years ago, which is more than there were 90 years ago. But there's this sense of, how far have we come in 90 years? You know, from 1930 to 2020, I mean, vast changes for opportunities, but how much has society changed 
you know, Augusta still has, you know, a, a, a huge thoroughfare that has uh, million-dollar houses on it, and the next street over in, on certain stretches of it, there are like $50,000 houses because those were the servants' quarters, you know, when they built the house and, like, you know, when, when Julian's mother was young. Like, that's a good example of, okay, you know, in the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, some of these houses were built, and, you know, you had to have... Uh, lodging for your servants and so these little tiny um, you know shotgun houses or bungalows or whatever were built for them to live in and those still remain in in Augusta now now some some cities have done away with them uh, but you know that's that's one of the I guess mixed blessings of living in uh, a place like Augusta is you get to see much more of the racial diversity in a city like Augusta than you would in even like Nashville, which is where I'm from. And so when it's out of sight, it's out of mind. But when it's in sight and in mind, sometimes like Whitney was saying, it can get to be like your cause, you know, it can, it can be your overwhelming uh, cause for, for, toward racism or toward radical uh, progressivism or integration, you know, whatever term you want to use for it, wokeism. And, and really, one of the things about this story that's never... I've never heard anyone mention this about this story is Julian's father has obviously passed away because Julian wouldn't have to take <laughs> take his mother to this this Y-reducing class otherwise. So he's either dead or gone. Like, you know, he's either abandoned the family or he's dead. And so his mother is, is grieving the loss of either, you know, a husband for, from death or from... Uh, from leaving, and I think it's from death, because we'll talk about her giving the penny in a minute, but I think that that's something that, that can naturally turn someone to a big mouthpiece for a cause, is, is deep grief can, can uh, push someone to be very, like, political or very, um, you know, social, like, like economically based, like, like, here's how we need to change, you know, how we tax rich people, or here's, you know, whatever it is, and, and um, it's not like they were obsessed with that, you know, 10 years ago, and, and then all of a sudden, they just find their, their freedom to do it, it's like, it, that just becomes one way for them to cope with their grief, and, and I think it's because what they're trying to do is bring new justice to the world, to replace the injustice that they feel from losing their loved one. And that, and that's, I mean, you know, as someone who's lost his father, like I totally understand how deeply grief can affect you and motivate you and drive you and, and even um, control you in a way that you don't know you're being controlled. Like you're out of, you know, you're kind of out of your right mind in deep grief. And so really both these characters, Julian and his mom are dealing with grief but he seems to want to outrun it, and she seems to want to go back past the grief to the place where she was actually a young child, which is, you know, we would call that nostalgia. So um, I think that's one of the really powerful things about this story is, like, what is making her be this way? It's not just, like, people are programmed as, like, naturally being really, you know, racially superior, you know, racial supremacy in their minds. I think that's just a one you know, one of many ways of coping with, with the hardships of life. And, and she's, she's actually lost, you know, the, the clout that she had and the, and the, um, the status and the privilege that she had when she was a child. I mean, she had servants when she was a child and now 
They live in like an ugly building in an apartment, and Julian is ungrateful, and you know, <laughs> it it just every time it says you know he he just can't stand her, but then at the same time, <laughs> this one sentence says he was not dominated by his mother. And it's like, this guy is the most, well, he's the second most mama's boy character of all the ones in these stories. We'll talk well, about the first in a second. He, he <laughs> thinks that because he doesn't like her, he's not dominated by her. Yes, but yes. if you're obsessed with not being able to stand somebody, you're dominated by that. That person's controlling you. It doesn't matter if they're controlling you because you want to please her so much or you want to defy her so much. I mean, if you grow up and you're an adult trying to defy your mother all the time and mm-hmm then you're being controlled by your mother. You're not, <laughs> you're not a free, independent person. I wanted to add, you were talking about what happened to the father, where the second page says she was a widow who had struggled fiercely to feed and clothe uh-huh, and put yeah, him okay, through school. Okay. Um, but, you know, I think that f- struggle, that fierce struggle that she had to undergo, like, this woman, because she was barely surviving and, and really had a difficult time and had to probably do things she never thought she would have to do as a Chesney, she's pretty obsessed with asserting her status through the little status markers that she can find, like that she always wears a hat and gloves. This hat, she purchased the hat because the saleswoman told her that she at least won't meet herself coming and going in that hat. Like the sales lady says that to her and then she repeats it. It's, it's really clearly, it's really made an impression. Well, at least in this hat, I won't see myself coming and going, you know, I will be distinctive. Mm -hmm. I will be unique. I will be, you know, significant and stand out. She comes out and, you know, looks at herself in the mirror and she says, well, <laughs> which makes you think about Pete Doherty reading a letter from a fan in the Japanese uh, Rhythm Factory show from 2003. Anyways, I think it's for the Death on the Stairs performance of the Libertines. And she refuses to be a martyr, and mm-hmm. he is insistent on being a martyr. That's just mm-hmm. a little motif that kind of runs through the story. Like the first page, he says it says he's waiting like St. Sebastian for the arrows to begin piercing him. He's just sort of like slumped back, you know, in agony about having to ride the bus with his mom. He's such a, he's so dramatic and, you know, yeah, so self-dramatizing. Um, whereas she is insisting on being jaunty. Um, like he, that word is applied to her on the first page and I think it, it kind of fits the way she wants to be as she moves through the world. I liked how she walks onto the bus and this is a public city bus, right? This is not like an elegant, nor is the Y reducing class for working class girls an elegant environment, but she walks into the bus and it says that she looks around like you would look around a drawing room where everyone was expecting you. Um, And she just sort of like introduces herself and starts talking as she enters the bus and starts fluttering a fan you know, a little Japanese fan. It's like she has to make her entrance. She she entered with a little smile as if she were going into a drawing room where everyone had been waiting for her. So it, it reminds me of Clarissa Dalloway, like, plunging out the front door, you know, like, oh, this is so exciting. I'm going to buy the flowers myself. How lovely. Everyone's happy that I'm here today on the streets of London. She's kind of like that on this mm-hmm. city bus. Um They both are living in fantasy worlds and judging each other for living in fantasy worlds. It he lives in the fantasy world 
of that old family mansion as much as she does, but he doesn't want to admit it to to her. But I love the way that he thinks she's living in a fantasy world, and he she thinks that he doesn't yet know a thing about life and hasn't entered the real world. <laughs> so yeah. they both are convinced about that, about each other. It's interesting that the Japanese fan, uh, it says black with the Japanese scene on it. And <laughs> I put interesting, anti-Japanese sentiments had cooled by then apparently, <laughs> which is just, it's so interesting to think about like, wow, we really got over our anger at Japan bringing us into World War II a lot quicker than we got over you know, the Civil War. I mean, we're still getting over the Civil War. And so, um, you know, I can't think of anybody other than George's mom on Seinfeld. Well, she says she won't ride in a German car. But, you know, it's like I can't imagine anybody now being like, oh, that's Japanese. I won't touch it. Like, they are, they were our enemies once, you know. And so that, I just thought that was a little, yet another little tiny detail that Flannery puts in there, <laughs> that O'Connor puts in there, um, that that really just shows here's a woman who's kind of like oblivious. Like it, it seems to me that that might like upset a, a veteran, you know, who might've lost a friend or, or relative, whatever, or, or someone on the bus that had lost a son in the fighting, but she doesn't even think twice about it Cause she thinks that that's cultured. And it's funny that Julian says, this is earlier on that same page. It says, rolling his eyes upward, he put his tie back on. By the way, he keeps rolling his eyes upward. It says he looked heavenward early on. Like, he's just like, Lord, give me the strength, you know. And yet he doesn't really believe in God. But it says, (laughs) restored to my class, he muttered. He ties his tie back on because he had taken his tie off. He thrust his head toward her and hissed. True culture is in the mind. The mind, he said and tapped his head. The mind. He's just hysterical. <laughs> I actually liked where she t- he takes his tie off and she says, you look like a thug. <laughs> and it looks like she, you look like a thug. Like, like there's a dash there. Like she's going to say something different. And of course, even today, the word thug is, is used like as a euphemism for a more hurtful word. Oftentimes, not always, but... You know, that she's like, you took your tie off, therefore you look like you're going to be a robber in the street. And so, you know, it's just, it's amazing how many little details there are. And then she keeps saying the phrase, the world is in a mess everywhere. And I think there's actually more truth to that than, than, you know, the story makes you think because it really is a world that's in a mess everywhere because of sin. And that racism is just one of the sins. And that, um, you know, just, just like denying someone's dignity because they're, they're your race and they're not as, you know, progressive as you. That's a sin, you know. And, and so just this concept of the world is in a mess everywhere and everything that rises, you know, will by default converge, but you got to rise. And so there's this sense of like, what is rising in this story? And one of the things that's rising is her blood pressure. And so one of the things that he says pretty early on is he, he actually wants to try and make her have a stroke. And so we'll talk about that in a second. But before we do, uh, I want to talk about 
this concept that, you know, he, he, he gets into his mental bubble and it says it was the only place where he felt free of the general idiocy of his fellows. And then I think it's, yeah, the next page it says, um, Julian kept his paper lowered to watch. It gave him a certain satisfaction to see injustice in daily operation. It confirmed his view that with a few exceptions, there was no one worth knowing within a radius of 300 miles. I mean... Self-loathing Southerner. Yeah, self-loathing Southerner. And and there's nothing more... I mean, you know, you can't call yourself an anti-racist and think there's no one worth knowing within 300 miles in the South because that's going to involve some other races. (laughs) And so... He, he's all tall. He's a misan- misanthropist, he really. He's a misanthropist. And really, what his problem is, is he doesn't have real meaning in his life. He's a graduate of college. He's trying to sell typewriters, but he really wants to be a, a writer. And it says a couple of times, uh, early on, it says something like, um, oh, it says, someday I'll start making money, Julian said gloomy. He knew he never would. Right, and then later in the story, it says, um, let's see, it's, it's pretty late in the story. Not that late, because it's the end. Um, it says something like, um, oh, dang it, where is it? It, it basically says, um, he knew he never would amount to anything. And just, <laughs> just like how it'll say things like, he has a momentary vision of himself participating in a sit-in demonstration. Yeah. And he's like... Nah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> he just like oh, kind of moves on from that, says, too. Good looking. His, her teeth had gone unfilled so that his could be straightened. Intelligent. He realized he was too intelligent to be a success. When, and with a future ahead of him, there was, of course, no future ahead of him. So Julian is actually, it, it, it's, it, says, it says that he is saturated in depression. And, you know, reading this story with a mental mental health focus is actually pretty pretty illustrative like it, 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 it illuminating it, it's very illuminating to see here are two people dealing with mental health maybe three if you want to count carver's mom um which by the way let's talk about the name here so we only have two names julian and carver <laughs> julian sounds I, I don't know why it sounds like julius caesar to me but it just makes me think like, oh, he's a Caesar, but he's, you know, he, he's never going to amount to, you know, he doesn't have the ambition to actually be a king. And Carver is the last name of George Washington Carver, who is famous for inventing peanut butter. Um, but I looked into George Washington Carver, and he uh, was a Christian and was very interested in racial reconciliation. And so... Um, not only he was, but his fa- his adopted father, the man that was originally owning his, I think he owned his parents as slaves. He was this man that owned slaves, but he was a unionist. He was like, you know, this this um, walking contradiction. He was this um, not all of one or all of the other person in the South, which I think is, you know, kind of like Julian. Like Julian is is... Uh, nostalgic for the the days of when his family mansion was theirs and it was well run, and then he's also this progressive, like wanting to outrun the racism and the the antebellum notions of of, of class and things like that. Mixed feelings, like there's yes, a, that moment yes. where his mother is saying, 
wouldn't you have mixed feelings if you were half white? Isn't that a hard thing to be, right? It's it's tragic to be half one race, half a different race, because you have mixed feelings. And yeah. he says, I have mixed feelings now. Yeah. Um, and then not too far down from that, it says he never spoke of that decayed family mansion without contempt or thought of it without longing. So mm-hmm. there's one, just one example of mixed feelings, but outwardly he shows contempt inwardly he feels longing it's just a pose the contempt that he shows people is just a pose and I think that that idea that he lives in a mental bubble that he sits in and safely judges everyone else um and feels free that's part of his mixed feelings I think because I think that if I keep myself apart and don't really venture much don't say much don't try to interact much don't try to get involved much it's easy to judge people Mm -hmm. but especially judge people's intelligence but once I have to get out there and venture right once I have to try to engage in the debate to just to say something Mm -hmm. I will eventually sound like an idiot right like there none of no one is above saying the wrong thing having a slip of the tongue talking without having thought through all the implications of what you're saying. No one's above it. And so I think he has mixed feelings. He feels superior to everyone else, but it's only when he keeps himself safe from actually having to kind of jump into the, the, you know, battlefield of ideas. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, I was listening to a a sermon about the Sermon on the Mount and about, um, the idea of, um, what is what does raka mean? The the word that Jesus says in Aramaic that's not translated into English, <laughs> and Tim Keller said it basically means a non-entity. It's like denying someone's existence. And so, listen to this. Julian folded his arms and looked stolidly before him, facing her. That is his mother, but as if he did not see her, as if he had ceased to recognize her existence. Mm, he cancels her. He cancels Proto her. Proto-canceling. <laughs> and and um, that is the, the, the deepest form of hate that you can show to someone. That's what Jesus is warning people about. He's, mm-hmm. saying, he's saying when you do that to someone, you are murdering them in your heart. And so to say that someone doesn't get to breathe the same air as you because they you know, say a racial slur or they, you know, are promiscuous or they are a drug addict or they, you know, you know, embezzle money or they, you know, hurt children or whatever it is, is you playing God? Now, you might say, but Adam, are you saying you want people to hurt children? No, but God has already said that that's a sin. And so there are laws on the books, if they're punished that those people will get, right? And so I think that's a, a big thing about this story is Julian feels like his mother will not get the punishment she deserves, which is, you know, if you want to go purely Christian view of this, the punishment everyone deserves for their sin is death. And he's afraid she won't she won't die. He wants to be the enforcer to be sure she's punished. All the hate he's built up toward her, he wants it to have an outlet. I what you were saying made me think of something I read recently. This is from Flannery O'Connor's introduction to this memoir of Marianne that she wrote. It's mm. kind of like a 
favor to some nuns. It's about this child, Marianne, who died of cancer and was just very saintly. And so it was not really in her wheelhouse, but she did it. Um, this is something that she wrote in the introduction. Um, says, in the absence of faith, now we govern by tenderness. It is a tenderness which, long since cut off from the person of Christ, is wrapped in theory. When tenderness is detached from the source of tenderness, its logical outcome is terror. It ends in forced labor camps and in the fumes of the gas chamber. So, to elaborate on that, she's talking about the idea that when you have a, a theoretical tenderness, um, it's called love in dreams mm-hmm. in the Brothers Karamazov. Yeah. Um, but this idea that, oh, in, in theory, I'm really tender toward victims. Um, in practice, what that makes you tend to do is be really cruel toward the people you see as the perpetrators of the violence or the vic- you know the people who create victims, the, the victimizers or mm-hmm. the predators. Be, you're incredibly ruthless toward them. Yeah. So that means that if you're a German and you saw the deep suffering after World War One, and you decided, as many people in Germany did, that the the Jewish race, the the Jewish people living in Germany, were the people who betrayed the German cause and brought all that suffering on, then they deserve anything you want to throw at them, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they deserve it. So it can create... C.S. Lewis says something similar, that if you believe that you are kind and you are fighting oppression, but you don't temper that with God's justice, with sort of an outside sense that every person has some kind of dignity, then you end up being cruel. And... You see that in this story because Julian, like I was thinking about how at the end of the story when he says, gives her this this diatribe and says things like, the old manners are obsolete and your graciousness is not worth a damn. Mm. You aren't who you think you are. I think a lot of what he says in that speech has some kind of ring of truth to it. Like I think it is true that she needs to understand that the world is changing and that her feeling gracious doesn't matter if she's hurting other people and insulting them. And she does need to change and she does need to be more empathetic and care less about just herself and how she feels. And she needs to get off her high horse. He's right, but he's like a clanging symbol because mm-hmm. he says all of it without love. Um, it doesn't get through to her. She doesn't even listen to him. It says she continued to plow ahead, paying no attention to him. He's just like a clanging symbol. He's not teaching her anything. And it's because his motive is hate. His motive is trying self-promotion and even trying to be a, a progressive anti-racist. Mm-hmm. By the end of the story, um, it says that he's entering the world of guilt and sorrow. Um mm-hmm. he'll finally learn. I think he he finally is in a place where he can get outside of himself, be vulnerable and learn. But um, until that point, he was just cruel. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, the way that Flannery sets this all up. (laughs) She says this on page 16, so about five, no, seven pages from the end of the story. It's, this is talking about the woman who hits Julian's mother with her purse it says uh, she was a giant of a woman her face was set not only to meet opposition but to seek it out 
The downward tilt of her large lower lip was a, a warning sign. Don't tamper with me. Her bulging figure was encased in a green crepe dress and her feet overflowed in red shoes. So she's got this nice color theory thing going. She had on a heinous hat, sorry, a hideous hat, a purple velvet flap, right? The, the exact hat that, that Julian's mother's wearing. And it says, she carried a mammoth red pocketbook that bulged throughout as if it were stuffed with rocks. Ouch. And so, uh, and then the next page it says, the woman was rumbling like a volcano about to become active. And, you know, this idea that, that, um, that Julian's mother's kept saying is, Rome wasn't built in a day, everything takes time. Well, the, the fury that this woman shows to her is 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 not something that takes time it it just boils over almost immediately and so it says Julian saw the black fist swing out with the red pocketbook he shut his eyes and cringed as he heard the woman shout he don't take nobody's pennies and it says when he opened his eyes the woman was disappearing down the street with the little boy staring wide-eyed over her shoulder Julian's mother was sitting on the sidewalk. And so there's this sense of she gets what she deserves in the sense that the mother of the child should be the one, like, giving the kid a nickel or whatever. Like, you know, like, I'll give my child my own money. Please don't give, give him your money. You know, that I, I understand that, but at the same time... She could have just been like, well, thank you. You know, like, she could have reacted differently. Obviously, Julian's mother could have not done it in the first place like Julian wanted her to. And so this concept of what happens from here to the end, well, she has a stroke. And so um, it's just interesting that that happens. And I would say that is the, like catalyst for the stroke but it's not the thing that begins it it's julian declaring war on her in the bus and trying to make her believe about race what he does which is on the surface much more tolerant but in practice much more shallow because he doesn't even have a single black person that he can call a friend and name and, you know, here's, here's uh, his mother dying, and she's like, tell Caroline uh, to come get me. Like, like, she wants to be united with her African-American person that's the best person she ever met instead of, you know, her husband. Or, or you know, so it's, it's surprising that that's who, who comes to mind as she's, like, on her, you know, dying on the street. And I just like how there's, there's not a villain you know, mm-hmm. even though yeah. you know, it's like, is everyone a villain? Well, yeah, kind of, because in O'Connor's vision of the world, that's just an important concept that she reminds us of all the time. Is just yeah. everyone is a villain. If I could think of myself more often as a villain, I would actually be more likely to be a saint one day, right? Because I would like humble yes. myself and that's a great grow and be open to God's, the movement of God's grace. And so that that quote that you were writing about this morning, the, the Pascal quote, will you, will you just say, cause I can't remember. Um, they, I'll paraphrase it at least, but the idea is, um, that every righteous man 
is convinced he's a sinner, thinks he's a sinner, and every sinner thinks he's a righteous man. Like, the only way that you truly can become a righteous person is by fully acknowledging pretty daily, like constantly, wow, yeah, I've still got a lot of room to grow. I'm still failing. I'm still weak. Um, It's just necessary. And, you know, it is moving at the end of the story. At first he says, mother, and he'd been thinking of her as the old lady throughout Mm -hmm. most stories. He says, mother. And then he says, darling, sweetheart. And then he says, mama. 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 I just think it, there's a, an article I read about um, a different story, but it was talking about how sometimes O'Connor will use this idea of returning back to like dependence on your mother as a sign that a character is returning back to a state of like childlikeness and vulnerability and openness to God. And you see that here. It says, you know, um, she says home. And it says home, she said, thickly. And so she wants to go home, but she doesn't want to go like to their apartment. She wants to go home, home, I think really to heaven. Like that's that's the the implication there. And that's why I say, you know, the penny that she gives this kid, it's like that she gave she gave a black person her last cent before she died, which is like regardless of how racist her mindset is and her her uh, attitude on the bus is her dying um, action is, is a, an action of ra- racial reconciliation you might even say it's reparation uh, although that's not <laughs> a penny's not going to go very far even in 1961 but she gives her last cent not to her son but to someone of a different race. And I think that that's, that's showing that she's in her dying, like basically when you know you're going to die, you have a chance to really get right with God. And that's really like, that's what's governing Flannery as she's writing all of these stories, is she's, she's finding ways to infuse her faith and infuse her vision of the world, which is really just the Christian worldview, onto a world that is really trying so hard to wash itself clean of Christianity. And so listen to this. This is the last part of the the story. It says, Mama, Mama. He turned her over. Her face was fiercely distorted, one eye large and staring, moving slightly to the left as if it had become unmoored. The other remained fixed on him, raked his face again, found nothing, and closed. And it made me think about the Pantocrator, and that's something that shows up in the Parker's backstory that we'll talk about. This uh, Byzantine-era Christ painting where his one eye is kind of fixed, like like staring, and his other eye is kind of judging. Is that is that kind of how you take it? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so that's actually a, a bigger... Uh, thing in, like I said, the story, Parker's back. But I think in that moment, she's already dead. And so it's almost like his mom didn't judge him, but Christ will. Like, he was spared the judgment from his mom, 
that he's going to get from Christ for basically enticing his mom to have a stroke. And so, you know, he's left, like Whitney said, the very last line, the tide of darkness seemed to sweep him back to her, postponing from moment to, to moment his entry into the world of guilt and sorrow. He's not at the judgment. You know, he's, he's not dead himself, but now he's going to have to learn what pain really feels like because now he doesn't have either of his parents and he depended so heavily on his mother for who he was that now he's been like all talk about, oh, I'm not this old South racist, you know, I'm progressive. I sit not next, to, next to black people on the bus, but now he's really going to have to start from scratch because when you lose a parent, especially if he's lost both his parents, he's, he's, he's going to be in a, in a deep void, you know, but that it's got this feeling of like, it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't just happen instantaneously. It's like he's like getting swept back on the tide for now, and he's eventually going to go out to sea and just be too deep. And, and you know, then he might have a, a huge life change. And maybe, you know, maybe he'll become a Christian and, and, and see the, the innocence that he sees in his mom's eyes. That it says, it says his, her eyes changed to like a, a bruised purple because of the, it says for a moment he had an uncomfortable sense of her innocence. That, that, we all have the you know the, the the dignity that God has given us, and so we have to some extent innocence because we're not demonic, but we're not innocent of sin or innocent of God's judgment. And so he he doesn't want to see her innocence; he only wants to see what he can judge. Well, you know, O'Connor she was so suspicious of Freudianism, and. Freudianism would consider guilt and sorrow to be pathological and you should get rid of them. You know, you should free yourself from them. Um, Christianity doesn't necessarily think that way. I mean, ultimately, there is a freedom from guilt and sorrow through salvation, but guilt and sorrow is the pathway to salvation as well, right? Guilt and sorrow is what leads to repentance. And then you are ultimately free from guilt and sorrow, but guilt and sorrow are healthy for a person who's not a Christian. The fact that Julian, he was depressed, but he was refusing to feel his own responsibility, you know, his own guilt, his own flawed nature. He was refusing to feel sorrow. He was just feeling annoyance, irritation, frustration, judgment. He, these are healthy feelings for him, I think. And, you know, O'Connor says that people are horrified by the wrong things in her stories. And I think that in this story, it would be very tempting to find it horrible that he's entering a world of guilt and sorrow and think, oh, what a terrible ending. I think it's a healthy place for him to be. Well, and it, whatever brings you close to God and, 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 and reconciles you to him through Christ is worth it because eternally you're better off. Now you might say, Oh, Adam, I don't want to lose this person, or I don't want to lose this job. I don't want to move. I don't want to have to lose my health. I don't want to have to you know, have this relationship break up. Like, I, I totally understand, and I've lost almost <laughs> everything I just mentioned, um, and I'm still here, you know. Um, but I can, I can attest to I see God more clearly now. I love God more fully now. And, and that's really what is so impressive about Flannery O'Connor is that e- even though you can read her intense wrestling with her culture and all these stories, you can also read 
her incredible faith in God. And, and um, you know, these two stories that we're discussing today aren't necessarily the, the uh, most obvious version of those, but I think that she really offers grace. You know, one of the phrases that they use for her stories is violent grace and doesn't get much more violent than somebody dying. And so I think that the woman hitting her, uh, the, the black woman hitting Duane's mother in the head with the rock, <laughs> purse full of rocks feeling, it's like, you know, Julian's mother gets this moment of, of violent grace, but in the very end, it really feels like she is, like, returning, you know, to, to the God that made her instead of going to hell and, and being with, you know, Satan and, and just kind of, like, losing all all mercy and grace that she had. Um, and so, you know, speaking of that, this, this is, we're going to uh, pole vault into the new story here, The Comforts of Home. Because uh, what Whitney was saying just before I said that is really where this story lands. It says, At that instant, Thomas damned not only the girl, but the entire order of the universe that made her possible. And so uh, this story, put succinctly, is about a <laughs> an unwelcome house guest. And uh, other than the lamb shell into first, I think this is the funniest story that she's written. I just laughed like... I think I wrote LOL like 50 times in 20 pages, maybe more. I mean, it just, <laughs> it, it's so funny, and yet it's so intense. I don't know. I mean, it's not necessarily, it doesn't really get tragic until the end, but it's it's so funny but so serious at the same time. Like, here's this this girl that his mother, Thomas's mother, brings to the house, and she... It's just getting in trouble with the law a lot, but she discusses what brought her to this place, and it turns out she's a nymphomaniac, which is, you know, a nymphomaniac, and it, just the, the details that, that you hear about her, it says, the poor girl Star, which by the way, she, she named herself Star Drake, but Thomas is like, that's not her real name, I did some in, in, uh, investigating, her real name is Sarah Ham, and so... <laughs> there's this element of uh, he's going to call it like it is and yet Sarah Ham Hamlet, this is about a son whose dad speaks from the dead and is accusing his mother of you know ruining their plan or whatever. There is this Hamlet element to this story which I've never heard anybody talk about but anyways, thought I'd point it out um, but, but let me read about Star and, and her background. It says, The poor girl Star had been brought up by a stepmother with three children of her own, one an almost grown boy who had taken advantage of her in such dreadful ways that she had been forced to run away and find a real mother. Once found, her real mother had sent her to various boarding schools to get rid of her. At each of these, she had been forced to run away by the presence of perverts and sadists so monstrous that their acts defied description. Thomas could tell that his mother had not been spared the details that she was sparing him. And so there's this element of this woman that, that Thomas's mother is taking in is really uh, just poor in spirit. Like, she, she's someone who needs help desperately. And, of course, Thomas, you know, has done some research into it, and it says the girl readily admitted that her story was untrue on account of her being a congenital liar. She lied, she said, because she was insecure. <laughs> and so there's this, like, really serious, like, she was abused, and, and oh my gosh, awful things that happened to her, and then it's like, she, she lies because she's insecure, and it's like, Flannery has this amazing ability 
to be so funny and so serious, just ping-ponging back and forth. And this story really just does a, a perfect example of that. It's so funny, and then it gets so serious, and they'll be funny again, and they'll be serious. So that's, the juxtaposition is really powerful. Uh, and, and one of my favorite moments is, well, now i got to find it. Um, Thomas loved his mother. <laughs> it spent the whole first five pages of the story, like, raking her over the coals, and then it's like, Thomas loved his mother. And yet, like... Clearly, he does. Like one does. one of the reasons he's the most, I mean, in his own way. Yeah. The one of the reasons he's so angry at Star is that she subjected his mother to having to hear that horrible story, and I think he's like, whether it's true or not, my mother shouldn't have to hear it because she's sensitive and innocent, and why should she have to hear a terrible story? But then thought that it might not even be true because she's a compulsive liar. It just adds insult to injury. But he wants to protect. He feels he should protect his mother, I think. But he also feels his mother should protect him, which is why he's so angry. He thinks they should have a mutually protective, kind of insulated little life together. And she's inviting chaos into their life with this reckless charity, you know. And not understanding that they're supposed to be singular and do their own thing and have a nice little comfortable life at home together. But one thing that you made me think of is I was just thinking about the pathways to empathy that are kind of, you know, raised in the story because his mom is empathetic mainly because she keeps thinking, what if that had been you, Thomas? You could have been born a nymphomaniac and then, you wouldn't have been able to help it. And you would have been just like, her. what if you had been born a congenital liar? Well, what if you had been born in the bad circumstances she was born into and you had grown up and been like her? And that's, I think for a lot of people, that's the pathway into empathy for someone who's very different. As you say, okay, what if my child got thrown into this circumstance? This could be her, you know? And a lot of the times you can't even really feel empathy for someone fully until you've been through something a little bit like what they've gone through. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, gut punch. I really know how that feels. Mm -hmm. Another pathway to empathy that's pretty typical is hearing someone's sad story, right? And I think that O'Connor kind of debunks both of those pathways into empathy a little bit. She says okay, the sad story may not even be true. The victimization story may not even be true. She may be more like a predator, you you know, like who's tempting and trying to like lure Thomas into sinning. So she kind of debunks that. And I think she also debunks like just through the way the story plays out, this idea that, well, you empathize with someone because you think, well, I naturally care about my family, and in theory, you're similar enough and sympathetic enough that I could kind of imagine you being one of my family members. Mm-hmm. I think she shows the limits of both of those forms of empathy. Um, they're like those, those like dream loves, dream tolerance, exactly. dream kindnesses that we were yeah. just talking about. Real empathy allows you to say, you know what, I still kind of hate this person, honestly, but I'm I'm going to show love to them because that's what Christ commands me to do. And Christ shows radical love to us when we're really hateful toward him, and so I'm just going to do it. But that's not the mom's motive. The mom seems sweet, you know, but that's not, like, her motive for helping start is a little shaky and sentimental and... 
Yeah, I think in, in the, the pathological, like, she's a victim and has a lot of psychological problems, so therefore I feel sorry for her and try to help her. Um, I think O'Connor's just trying to show us through her stories so often that everybody deserves pity and everybody needs it. Yeah. Period. Yeah. I wrote at the top of this story, The Prodigal Daughter. Because in some ways, this is like a, a slanted uh, retelling of the prodigal son. <laughs> and uh, except the one where, <laughs> where the older brother kills, <laughs> kills the father. <laughs> um, Thomas shoots his mother dead by accident at the end of the story. And, you know, this story, I know that this was not one of uh, Flannery O'Connor's favorite stories. Like a lot of people don't like this story. Um, I liked it, but it doesn't have the same weight uh, that some of the other ones does. Certainly, that's why we talked about it second after Everything That Rises Must Converge, because Everything That Rises Must Converge is a really uh, ambitious story. This, like I said on uh, our alpha, not our alpha, uh, on take one of this that we tried to record, uh, I said this story reminds me so much of a Looney Tunes cartoon. And it's just it's just so consistently funny. It does. It feels like Flannery was trying to write a cartoon story. Like the, she never uses a word like this, but this is the first you know page. Thomas withdrew to the side of the window and with his head between the wall and the curtain, he looked down on the driveway where the car had stopped. His mother and the little slut were getting out of it. Like it's so shocking because even as shocking as Flannery O'Connor's stories are, I don't think there's another story that she uses a word like that. And so that really catches your attention as a reader. Um, and, and just, it, it's like you get so deeply into Thomas's mindset uh, that it's, I don't know, it just feels more cartoonish to me. Uh, also because June, uh, sorry, Star Drake, I mean, that just sounds like a cartoon name. It does, you know, she made it up for herself. And so. And he sees her as, not a human being. Right, like, right. It, all these moments, like, where he keeps calling her the little slut, but also she has a haircut like an elf or a dog. Like, there's all these yeah. tiny little details that make you see that it's almost like between his father being, a, like, a demon, like, yeah. his father is very much, his dead father is very much talked about as, like, a a demon that's sort of almost tangibly following him around and tempting him. And then it seems like Star is also a demon who's tempting him. Yeah, I mean, he thinks of them both that way, I think. Yeah. And at the end, he shoots because he wants to bring an end to the evil of the world. And yes. I think he just thinks, like, this isn't a human being. This is just like some sort of demon incarnate, this girl. Mm-hmm. Like, she's, she's just the worst possible evil. I'm going to get rid of her. And... I mean, that's the violent end that that moral purity leads to in O'Connor's vision of the world, that if mm. you think that you're so morally pure, you think that you're so much better than someone else, and that you're the arbiter of goodness, then you're going to end up being violent. Yeah. Even if you think you're above it, you think you would never do such a thing as that. Yeah. And then the, the way that the... Sheriff, is he a sheriff? He's a sheriff. Yeah. yeah, the sheriff just assumes that Star and Thomas are lovers, and they yeah. wanted to kill off the mother. He assumes them a sordid kind of like 
tabloid newspaper version of the events. But it's funny. I think he's seeing Thomas as as ugly as he is. Mm-hmm. We, we suddenly jump out of Thomas's head and we're in this very much an outsider's perspective. And we're not subjectively in Thomas's head anymore. And we see the ugliness of his soul for what it looks like to everyone else. There's just this narrow, hateful, destructive man. Yeah. I don't know. Thomas, to me, it's like Julian, I see his insecurities more, uh, more clearly, because I think the narrator is a little more distanced from Julian's mind. But Thomas is is like, we get so deeply into his mind, it was now up to him to pack a suitcase, go to the hotel, and stay there until the house should be cleared. Like, as if it's being cleared of fleas or something. It says, he did not know where his suitcase was. He disliked to pack. He needed his books. His typewriter was not portable. He was used to an electric blanket. <laughs> he could not bear to eat at restaurants. His mother, with her daredevil charity, was about to wreck the peace of the house. And just, I mean, this guy, he's 35. He still lives at home. Which is, you know, if you live at home, you live at home. But he doesn't seem to have any desire not to live at home. Because it's so comfortable. Exactly, because <laughs> it's so comfortable. And he has his little electric blanket. And it's just like, he is such a mama's boy. And it, it, it's, it's like... Flannery O'Connor makes these men so pitiful. <laughs> his home is his <laughs> idol. Like his room. Yeah, yeah, he is obsessed with it. Like yeah. it says, his home was to him home, workshop, church. Yes. As personal as the shell of a turtle and yes. as necessary. He could not believe it could be violated in this way. Yes. Um, and, you know, the mother says she needs a home about Star, and he says she does not need mine. <laughs> and that possessiveness about his mother, because his mother is part of what makes the home a home, right? right. She cooks the meal. She makes the home comfortable. Um, but, yeah, just revealing his idolatry, I mean, that is the absolute necessity for him is his comfort, the comfort of home. Yeah. Comfort as an idolatry I never thought about comfort being an idolatry until Tim Keller brings it up in his book. Um, what's that book called? The Gospel in Life, yeah. I think. Um, and I was like hit really hard by that concept because I think comfort is a an idol for me, like a really really easy go to idol, right? Like you just really want to be comfortable and don't want anything to disrupt it. Um, and I I can see that the petty thoughts that he has they seem foolish and ridiculous because they are but it's really easy to uh, very much resent someone who is destroying the comfort of your home because you think well I have to go out in the world and deal with difficult things and people but my home can I be comfortable in my home mm. you know and thinking that's a, a birthright when it's not the the paragraph that says she had made her choice an intense pain gripped his throat. It was the first time in his 35 years he felt a sudden burning moisture behind his eyes. Then he steadied himself, overcome by rage. On the contrary, she had not made any choice. She was counting on his attachment to his electric blanket. <laughs> <laughs> she would have to be shown. And and just, the, I, I mean, this guy. He's like Buster Bluth. Yes. I kept thinking about yes. Buster Bluth. I could totally, can't you see Buster Bluth like planting a gun in some 
like Anyang's. We're talking about Arrested yes. Development yes. now. But like planting a gun in Anyang's bag, then accidentally like shooting Lucille because he's so jealous. Yes. I mean, it's like that level of yeah. You know, Buster Bluth is like the epitome of pitiful obsessed with home and his mom. Yes. And I think Thomas is rivaling him. Yes. And so uh, when, when Star comes into his room, Sarah Ham, it says she had invaded his room. She had waked to find his door open and her, sorry, he had waited to find his door open and her in it. There was enough light from the hall to make her visible as she turned toward him. The face was like a comedian's in a musical comedy, a pointed chin, wide apple cheeks, and feline empty eyes. He had sprung out of his bed and snatched a straight chair, and then he had backed her out of the door, holding the chair in front of him like an animal trainer driving out a dangerous cat. <laughs> I mean, that's as cartoonish as it gets. Like, yeah. I really feel like she was writing a cartoonishly silly story that doesn't necessarily have the same spiritual impact as the others, in part because I don't think she really knew who Thomas was spiritually. Like, there are moments where he's very interested in virtue, but then he's like, no, uh, you know, um, too much virtue is a vice. I think he means virtue in the sense of well-regulated life. Yeah. Right? Yeah, he's like, like a... Um, vice destabilizes things. Yes. Like, basically, um, you know, um, I lost my... Moderation in all things. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. His, that's his zeitgeist, his religion. Yes. And he says his own life was made bearable by the fruits of his mother's saner virtues, like yeah. his, the well-regulated house she kept. Like, he likes virtues that make life predictable and stable. Yeah. Any virtues that destabilize life, like everything Jesus is asking for in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, you know, um, where, where you have to do something that's countercultural or difficult for you or costly yeah. in some way. He's like, eh. And he, he, calls, uh, he calls Star a moral moron. And... You know, just this attitude of like, just like, you know, being judgmental of someone because of their race or being judgmental of someone because of their supposed intellect. He's being judgmental of her, not because of her actual, you know, rational intellect. He's, he's saying her spiritual intellect is so deficient that she doesn't know how to do something righteous. Doesn't like she doesn't know any better. Yeah, she couldn't be righteous. And which is. You know, it's like, I guess if you want to go on a very, like, John Calvin side of things, like, that's where people are before they know Christ, that they can't act in righteousness. And, you know, I would lean more on the, like, there's universal grace that allows us to be in the image of God prior to salvation, but that salvation, uh, that, that sanctification doesn't start until we're, until we're saved by Christ, um, but but Thomas has this attitude of like he he's just going to to keep like keep the ship above above the water and keep it floating forever, and the only thing threatening that is this girl that his mom has brought into the house, and it inevitably does sink the ship. It's like his worst fear comes to pass because because he lets it right. Like, 
he just doesn't show any patience. He exacerbates yeah. things because someone walking into his room destabilizes his life more than he can handle. Mm-hmm. You know, someone sitting at his dinner table destabilizes his life more than he can handle. It says on, this is on my page 118, which is about four pages into the story. It says, the devil for Thomas was only a manner of speaking, but it was a manner appropriate to the situations his mother got into. Had she been in any degree intellectual, he could have proved to her from early Christian history that no excess of virtue is justified, that a moderation of good produces likewise a moderation of evil, that if Antony of Egypt had stayed home at home and attended to his sister, no devils would have plagued him. And so it, he says all this, and then it says, Thomas was not cynical. <laughs> He's so just, he doesn't know who he is at all because everything that who he is is that house. Mm-hmm. That's why the story is called The Comforts of Home. And obviously you could extend that to be a metaphor to say like, take a fish out of water and it has no idea what to do with itself. Like he has to be in this home, but it's his pride that destroys the home. And he thinks he is, again, we talked about being the moral arbiter. He thinks he's the moral arbiter. Like he gets to decide through his intellect because his intellect is so powerful he gets to decide what is a reasonable amount of virtue and what is too much. Like it says um, on my page 390, it says, absently he asked himself what the attitude of God was to this, <laughs> meaning yeah. if possible to adopt it. Um, and it's just interesting. Like that sounds good sort of in theory. Like what would God, what would Jesus do, right? Like what would yes. God think about this? But I think for him, um, He's talking to himself about Star um, and saying that there's no responsible faculty behind her corruption. So he, like, kind of doesn't know what to make of it. Like, he wants to point a finger at her, but he Mm -hmm. says, I can't feel contempt for someone who can't even, like, make moral choices. He's basically saying her IQ morally is, like, more on level. And so, therefore, you couldn't hold... Uh, like a person with an incredibly low IQ responsible for not being able to do algebra. So like, I can't hold this person with a low moral IQ responsible for not being able to like stopping a lying nymphomaniac. Mm-hmm. However, I hate her so much <laughs> so, and, I, and I feel incredible contempt for her. So he's like really just trying to think, it keeps saying unbearable. Like there's certain things that are unbearable and mainly star is unbearable. He just can't, he can't bear it, can't bear her. But I think he wants very much to be able to, like, explain to himself why he shouldn't have to bear her and why it's completely unreasonable that anyone would ever ask him to and then just feel good about that and mm-hmm. not have to have any outside input. It's interesting. You know, this just dawned on me. that The, the Sarah Ham, the Ham dawned on me, like, as I was reading the story, but Sarah laughs and the laughter Mm -hmm. is just the most prominent thing in this story that this woman star drake aka sarah ham just laughs all the time can't take anything seriously enough to like make moral choices it seems like yeah and so there's this element of like she brings laughter to a serious house that's you know grieving the loss of the father which by the way (laughs) it really sounds like the father was a you know 
an SOB, a real piece of work, and yet it's like her coming in the house makes Thomas want to relate to his father, which is just such a strange... To it's be like, cruel, yeah, like his father cruel. was, yeah, ruthless. exactly. Yeah, because he's more passive. It's not that he's like kindly or something, but he's passive. And it says, uh, let me find it. it. It says that when his father died that... Um, Basically, he, he fell over in a, in a fit of rage. Like, he, he died at the, at the... Yeah, he had always been enraged... Sorry, engaged in some enraged action until one morning when, with an angry glance at his wife as if she alone were responsible, he had dropped dead at the breakfast table. So there's this element of, like, rage runs in the family, and his, you know, his mom is not rageful at all. She is uh, painfully giving... You know, she's she's trying to bring this person into their house, really to kind of adopt her, you know, and, and this idea of, like, adopting not just um, to be your physical child, but to be your spiritual, uh, you know, like, like, she wants to take spiritual care for her and teach her about morals and teach her about God. And then Thomas is, like, absolutely not... I am your child. Um, and of course you can, you know, you can draw that parallel to be like, this could be like the Jews and the Gentiles, you know, Thomas is this, like I'm comfortable in Israel and I, you know, don't mess, you know, don't mess things up and then don't bring these, you know, Gentiles into the church or the Samaritans or whatever. And then, uh Oh, you know, <laughs> well, I think that part of it is, so it says that his mother, um, in the morning is, wearing a gray turban around her head, which gave her face a disconcerting, omniscient look. Mm -hmm. He might have been breakfasting with a sibyl. And then later on, it repeats that idea of her her being a sibyl, like a prophet, Mm -hmm. um, female prophet. And I think, you know, he's trying to think, I wonder what God would think about this girl. I, I should probably try to think about what God would think and then just be the same. And then we're told that he kind of has a prophet kind of an omniscient prophet in his mother telling him what God would yes. do. And he's like, no, 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 no. I hate that so much. That's They're absolutely not doing that. Cause it right after that description of his father falling down dead at the breakfast table out of rage or whatever, it says Thomas had inherited his mother, his father's reason without his ruthlessness mm. and his mother's love of good without her tendency to pursue it. So essentially he does nothing, right? Like he, yes. he can judge like his father did, but he's not going to, he doesn't want to do anything about it. And in theory, he loves the idea of like being a good person, but he's not going to actually do anything about that either. And it says it was at these times that Thomas truly mourned the death of his father, though he had not been able to endure him in life. I think he's not mourning his father because he hates his father. He is wishing his father would come in and take care of things because he's so passive. Part of being comfortable being obsessed with being comfortable is you don't want to have to take a risk or like do much of anything. And he's, he just has to do something about the situation. Otherwise he's never going to be comfortable in his house. So he's like, I think that this is a story about an extremely lazy kind of passive person who is being forced into action. And he goes way overboard. Yeah. And like panics. Yeah. Very Buster Bluth. Like, you know, don't go in the ocean. He goes in the ocean and gets, well, you can watch season two of Arrested Development. And so here's, this This is Thomas talking with Sarah Ham, a.k.a. Star. It says, 
he would let her know that he would he understood what she was up to, that he was not an innocent, and that there were certain things he would not put up with. You know, that, that made me think about this idea of, like, I'm not an innocent, you know? And, and we talked about this with Absalom Absalom, uh, that Jason Compson third thought that Thomas Upton was an innocent. And, like, how could you be innocent when you're doing these heinous things but I think he's looking at it in terms of naivete. Yeah, and Thomas is like, I'm not a fool. I think that's kind of what he means by I'm yes. not innocent. I'm, I'm no fool. You, you're not getting one over on me. My yes. mother, you might be getting one over on, but I, I see you. You're worthless. You're not redeemable. You're not worth helping. It's interesting that you say that, like calling her a fool. Like, yet again, here is this... Anyone that calls someone a fool is in danger of going to hell. Like Jesus, Jesus gives this incredibly high standard for what it means to to murder someone. It's not pulling the trigger or you know running them over or however else you would murder somebody. It's starting in your heart with this sense of I'm better than that person, and one of the easiest ways to do that is intellect. And so here's Thomas saying, I'm not an innocent, like that dummy, my mom, right? So he's already killing her in his heart (laughs) before he actually, it's amazing, like, because Flannery O'Connor is so deeply drenched in the, the, the word of God, even her stories like this that don't have a, a huge spiritual component, they still can be, you can still apply scripture to them very easily and see, okay, he's committing murder in his heart when he's saying he's not an innocent, and then he actually murders his mom. It's accidental, but he was trying to murder Star, so it's, it, you know, he just hits the wrong person. But uh, just the ending of this story gets gets going so quickly. Like, I, I felt like the last, you know, the last 10 pages of the story is really just kind of from, from the point he tries to plant the gun on her to the end, it kind of feels like it just goes by quickly because it spent so much time setting up this dichotomy between Thomas and his mother versus Star Drake and his mother and then the chaos that ensues when this, you know, laughing, hysterical person comes in to his, like, very serious, always placid, always has his electric blanket on so he doesn't get cold at night. I mean, bless his heart. Like, if you, if you sleep with an electric blanket, that's fine. I, you know, we, we keep it, like, 64 in our room, so we're, we're more on the cold nature. But, um... But the thing is, is that he wouldn't even leave the house to save himself because he couldn't do without the comforts of home. And it just goes to show, like, he is that electric blanket. Like, that electric blanket is part of his identity. It's not something that he could do without. And, you know, he's insisting, I'm not innocent, I'm not innocent. But, I don't know, there's something about, you know, there's a moment where it says that the quality of, of Star's look was such that it might have been her hands resting now on his knees, now on his neck. Her eyes had a mocking glitter. Um, I think he feels threatened, not just like, oh, my comfort's going to be threatened, so she's going to be annoying to me, but he feels 
it's to me in a plus sexually threatened by her you know it makes a point of saying that she's kind of obsessed with sex mm-hmm. and it seems like she's always trying to be seductive around him. Like, the way it'll yeah. say, like, one leg comes in front of the other. Like, she's walking in this, like, kind of intentionally seductive way around him. Um, she's going in his room in a way that's, like, intimate. And I think that, you know, part of wanting to be comfortable forever and live in your mom's home forever is that you don't want to enter adulthood. And her interest in sexuality is just one way in which she threatens him with that. It's destabilizing. It's uncomfortable. Um, there's a reason why in Brave New World, the songs that they dance to at nightclubs and things like that are about how great it would be if you could go back to your mother's womb and just live there, except they don't have mothers, so it's the bottle that they were in before they were decanted. But this idea that the ideal in that society that idolizes comfort would be that you go back to the womb where are you more comfortable than the womb you're always warm you're always fed you don't have to do anything he essentially is trying to do that with every moment of his life and i think that he feels like star is threatening him with kind of adulthood either having to move out of the house or having to you know engage with sexual attraction to another person that might lure that might lure him out of his mother's house too um now i guess he's going to go to jail so well let's talk about the the way it kind of ends so thomas goes to talk to the sheriff who was friends with his dad and he 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 has planted the gun in star's possession in her purse and he's going to get the sheriff to basically arrest her on stealing the weapon and just, you know, the litany of other charges she's already got against her. And when he tries to go to talk to the sheriff, <laughs> he, he kind of doesn't know what to do. It says Thomas began to blurt out his business and he had not had time, as he had not had time to prepare his words, he was barely coherent by repeating the same thing over several times, he managed at length to get out what he wanted to say. Now, I don't interact with law enforcement that much, but I'm pretty sure if someone comes over to a law enforcement officer and actually weird, they're going to get a little suspicious. So Thomas is actually arousing suspicion more by trying to make this come to pass than if he had just let it, let it go and let it run its course. And then it says Thomas began again slower... <laughs> And in a lamer voice, and Fairbrother let him continue for some time before he said, We had her once. He then allowed himself a slow, creased, all-knowing quarter smile. I had nothing to do with that, Thomas said. That was my mother. Fairbrother squatted. (laughs) (laughs) And there's this recurring thing of, like, his dad would sometimes start squatting in the middle of a conversation, and that the other men would just squat with him. And so when Fairbrother does this, it's it's just, Flannery is just so funny. Like, she knows how to make anything funny. And it <laughs> makes a point, too, that, like, because right after they're, they're squatting, and then it says Fairbrother removes the cigarette butt from his lips and drops it on the grass. Behind, beyond him in the courtyard is a group of loiterers. Yeah. Um, 
And they're just following the sunlight. They're just like moving along yeah. with the sunlight. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then it says just what seems like a pointless detail from one of the upper windows, a crumpled piece of paper blew out and drifted down. Like nothing happens further with that piece of paper. It's just a detail. But I think it, it really highlights the fact that within Thomas's mind, this is the most urgent moment of his life. He's in a complete panic. No one else feels that this is an urgent yeah. moment or that this is anything worth really panicking over. I mean, it seems like he's overreacting to everyone else, I think. Um, and the fact that he finds everything that's happening so threatening, so insulting, I think from another person's perspective, it would seem comical that Thomas feels so threatened by it says like when he touches her pocketbook to put the gun in there it feels like human skin and yes. it like disturbs them and it smells like her and that he would find the fact that she's like basically like a young woman in his house mm-hmm. so disturbing would seem comical to Fairbrother and everyone else like that he would be so scared of being around a young woman essentially mm-hmm. that he's never really gotten comfortable doing that and he's 35 years old and he's he's scared he's gonna turn into her Yes. Like it, um, at one point it says, Thomas felt a deep, unbearable loathing for himself as if he were slowly turning into the girl. And his mother yeah. keeps saying, like, imagine if you were her. And at the end of the story, it feels like she has, like, kind of seduced him into being as evil as she is. Like, when he puts that gun yes. in his pocketbook, yes. he's, it's like she won. Yeah, that's um, a great point. And it says her intimate grin was fixed on him fiercely. And that's when, you know, it kind of escalates and he shoots. But, like, she won by getting him to be... She didn't seduce him in that physical, sexual sense, but she seduced him into evil. Yes, yes. Interesting. Um, It's funny. The dichotomy between Sarah Hamm, a.k.a. Star Drake, and Thomas is almost like the dichotomy between Marla and the narrator a.k.a. Jack, a.k.a. Cornelius on Fight Club. <laughs> um, and that, like, he has this speech that he's going to give to her, and she's like, I saw you rehearsing your little <laughs> speech over there. Like, there's just something about that that just is very, you know, caught in this. And, and, and um, yeah, that detail that you said from one of the upper windows, a crumpled piece of paper blew out and drifted down. Like, that comes out of nowhere, I kind of wonder, is that the sign, like, don't do what you're going to do? Like, you're going to, you know, like, a crumpled piece of paper being thrown out the window means it was a mistake and it was, you know, discarded. Like, you're going to have to start over. And so maybe maybe it's like Thomas is going to have to literally start over in life because he's going to kill his mom. He's going to destroy the comforts of home. Um, but it's just, I don't know, it, it's such a random detail that it's like, what you know, who threw it and why, you know, why were they working if everybody else is just loitering and, you know, just not, not actually working. Um, but that's just, you know, that's just a shot in the dark. But I think, you know, the way that this ends where he realizes you know, she put it back. Like he, he's so shocked that you can't help but be shocked. Even the same way that Julian is shocked when he realizes the hat's the same hat his mom has. It's like, you know, it is cause you read the description, but it's almost like it, it clicks right then. And you're like, Oh my gosh, 
the I think it's called dramatic irony, where like the reader knows before the character knows that it's it's going to be the same hat, or it's like you know the the gun's going to be in his in his drawer. Um, th- there's just I don't know. There's that element of like you're just laughing at him for for just you know the best laid plans of mice and men. Like you know, it just he, he's never gonna he, he's never gonna succeed in ridding himself of this woman. And he thought he was above, you know, planting a gun in a girl's yes. pocket. I mean, that's yes. so like. That's obviously not virtuous, and I think he would think he was above that. He's not a moral moron. You know, he's above that kind of behavior, but he's desperate, and he's not thinking. And his father, his father's spirit has kind of possessed him. He hated his father, but he's allowed his father's spirit to possess him. It even says um, his mother gasped at the sound of the other presence in his voice. Um, when he's saying, I found it in her bag, the dirty criminal slut stole my gun. I think it's his father. He's possessed by his Uh father's spirit. Um, And it says the old lady's Sybil-like face turned pale. Tie back to when it says she was like a, a, you know, a prophetess or she was like, she was omniscient. And she, in that moment, it's like, what would God do for this girl? Well, she throws herself in front of Star to protect her and dies, Mm -hmm. saving her life. I mean, I think... There really aren't, like, pure saints in O'Connor's stories, and I appreciate that, that they're human beings. They're yes. not perfect people. Like, her mother, the mother in the story is still comic. Like, the way she takes the little box of the candy to everybody, <laughs> it's, like, her default <laughs> nice thing to do. So then she just, like, trots off to jail and with a box of candy. It is funny. And it says, like, when people of her social class move to town, she takes them a box of candy. So she's she's not, I mean, she's got her blind spots and she she's not some sort of like saintly perfect person but she sacrifices a lot to try yeah. to help a person and i think that's honored in the story yes yes and i think that that's i think what flannery o'connor does so well with all of her stories but especially the ones that we'll talk about next time um green leaf and the enduring chill is she finds a way to bring the supernatural into the natural in a way that's unexpected. And and it's like, you know, a lot of times we might think like, oh, we might see a sign from God in the sky, you know, because we think of like heaven being upward. But like God speaks to Moses in a burning bush. Like that would not be anyone's first thought of, oh, Mm -hmm. that's how God's going to speak to me. Or a criminal hanging on an method of execution like that's you know there's just this real unexpectedness to how god decides to work in the world and in scripture that we could never really see where it's going to happen and it happens through violent means sometimes um and tawdry like not tawdry maybe but um details that don't seem poetic sometimes they seem prosaic like Flannery O'Connor wrote about the incarnation being grotesque, mm. meaning that it's high meets low. So yeah. the way that you call, you actually call gargoyles grotesques, sometimes like gargoyles on a cathedral because right. it's like a demon, you know, the opposite of what you would expect to find on a cathedral, like just this irony of that. Right. But like the incarnation is in its own way grotesque because if you ever really stop and think about Jesus becoming a man, God becoming a mm-hmm. man, 
that means that Jesus had to do all the things human do humans do that they aren't sinful. They just seem demeaning to us. You know, Get like boogers in his nose. Exactly. We have a baby, so we're like cleaning boogers out of her nose pretty regularly. And it's, you know, she hates it. We love you, Josephine. Yeah. I don't really find it gross anymore at this point, but like in theory, I think I would have found it gross to be like getting snot and boogers out of someone else's nose. But Jesus was a little baby who was so helpless that he had to have his mother help him with things like that. Like yeah. that is what she means by the incarnation being grotesque, but it also means that there's no part of life that's too humiliating to, like, share it with God. Right. You know what I mean? Or too small or, like, pointless. So it makes everything potentially, like, a space for the sacred, no matter how normal and everyday and, like, weak it is. And I yeah. love that. And I think it's it's interesting that you say that because, really, these, these two stories, I think... Are, are the most prosaic stories. Like, a, a, a story about riding the bus. A story about, you know, your mom trying to take in a troubled girl. Like, you know, taking candy to the to the jail. Like, that, that sounds pretty prosaic. But they both end really violently and, and in a severe, scary way. Um, and in a way that, that is going to alter the characters involved forever. And... Um, I think that that's, you know, like like I mentioned, violent grace. That that God's grace is not meant to be a, a weekend trip that you, you know, you go, okay, we went to the beach and then we came back and went back about our daily lives. It's, it's meant to be, you know, it's meant to be so life-changing that you, you are fundamentally shifted because of it. And in these two stories the grace that happens is death, which doesn't sound like a grace. It sounds like a judgment, but it actually is something that Flannery O'Connor is dealing with as she's writing these stories is she knows she's going to die of lupus eventually because her dad has died of lupus and she just knows she's not in great health. So it's like, why am I writing these stories? Well, she's writing these stories to try and get more people to think about their faith or their lack of faith and why they don't have faith and to look at God in new ways, not because she's trying to redefine God, but because she's trying to widen the scope to see God more clearly than the, the religion of the 1950s and 60s was allowing people really to see the grandeur of God and the severity of God and uh, the love of God, you know, et cetera, et cetera. She's really trying to go deep into the past of, of Christian faith to show a more complete picture of, of Christ and, and the, the redemption that you can have through him. But these stories, you know, like starting this collection with a story about racial reconciliation, it might not seem like it has a lot to do with Christian faith, but it actually has everything to do with Christian faith because if you're a Christian, you can't say that your race is more important to you than your faith. Or that someone else's race is a, a reason yeah. for you to like feel superior to them or be dismissive of them in any way because yeah. I, you know, understanding that God created each person really eliminates that kind of thinking. It just has yeah. to. Um, I, I was just 
um, reminded of something that I read um, that she wrote in 1956. So, you know, this is a, a while before her death, but she wrote, sickness before death is a very appropriate thing. And I think those who don't have it miss one of God's mercies. So calling sickness a mercy um, because it gives you a chance to realize you're going to die for a while before you die and to reckon with it and live in light of it and live in a way that is more deliberate. Um, That's a mercy. And in a lot of these stories, death comes pretty suddenly to people, um, pretty brutally, pretty violently. Um, But I wonder if it's because for a person who doesn't know God yet, there's a sense that they wouldn't use the sickness appropriately, right? Like, sickness can be something that causes us to pity ourselves really easily, or it can be something that causes us to live with intention. And, you know, maybe her characters are so stubborn they need to be kind of brutalized a little bit if they're going to actually be open to to changing. Mm Yeah, there's this line in The Comforts of Home. It says, he was like a man handed a knife and told to operate on himself if he want, if he wished to live. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are some people that say, well, I can clip my fingernails by myself. I don't need a surgeon. You know, I can, um, you know, if you're like uh, wounded badly in battle, you might have to amputate your own arm or foot or something like that, like the, or like the movie 127 Hours, like, you going to die in the canyon or are you going to cut your arm off? And so there are levels of surgery that we can do on ourselves that we think, well, I, I don't need God. But you can't do brain surgery on yourself. You can't do heart surgery on yourself. You, I mean, there are reasons that you need a expert surgeon to do some of these surgeries that you don't need a surgeon to cut your fingernails, for example. And it's like... I think that we all get to that point, you know, the poverty of spirit that Jesus talks about in the, in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, and that's where we start, that we can't come to faith if we don't start with saying, I can't do the heart surgery on myself. Because if you think you can cut your fingernails and keep your fingernails trimmed, then you're a Thomas. Thomas is someone who is just equilibrium all the time. Like, all that's really wrong with me is that I need to trim my fingernails, yes. not I have cancer. Yes. You know, he doesn't understand that, like, he's a sinner. Yeah. That it's it's serious. That he's capable of doing yeah. something like killing his mother. Exactly. Like, you know, he didn't think, exactly. doesn't think that's even possible. And that's, that's what's and, so powerful. And most of us yeah. think that way. I, of yeah. course, I would never do that. I would do this thing, but that's understandable because that's tempting. I would never do this other thing. Yeah. And we all desperately need to get over ourselves and... You know, yeah. realize I have a I have a log in my eye. I don't just have a speck in my eye. Yeah. Like I think I have a tiny speck in because that's, with your surgery metaphor. I mean, it's kind of humorous that Jesus phrases it that way because anyone could get a speck out of their own eye, probably. Yeah. But getting a if you had a log in your eye, you're in trouble. Like yeah. you need help. <laughs> <laughs> Paging Doctor Brendan Sumich. Uh, <laughs> he's my ophthalmologist. Uh, best friend from college that was my roommate for two years. Um, So I think that's a good point to end on is this idea of like both of these young men have relationships with their moms that end by the end of the stories 
And at the end of the stories, I think they're starting to realize they have a log in their eyes, but they don't know how to get it out. And so Flannery O'Connor doesn't, doesn't end the story with a happy ending. She ends it with a beginning to, you know, hopefully finding the true happy ending, which is, is salvation in Christ and, and eternity in heaven. Uh, but that that's a very different happy ending than like oh and then he got to sleep in his his room with his with his electric blanket again and nothing ever bothered him mm-hmm. again like and their mother sacrificed a lot for them yeah. for for their ability to open up and see that they have a log in their eye it sounds like both mothers had sacrificed a lot for these boys all along without yeah. the boys being as grateful as they should right. have been really right. and then they make these ultimate sacrifices yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, that's uh, everything that rises must converge, the story, and the comforts of home. Next time we will talk about Greenleaf and the Enduring Chill. We will look forward to talking with you then. This has been Summer (laughs) Summer Deals. Summer Deals with the Reading. Summer Deals with the Reading. Summer Reading with the Deals, Season 2, Episode 1. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye.